I want to open this morning by asking um, a simple question. What is your relationship like with rules? What is your relationship like with rules, with rules or laws? Do you like them? Do you like the feeling that you know you've done the right thing, <clears throat> that you've checked the box, that you've been on the quote-unquote right side of history, as is often said these days? Do you dislike them? Always feeling like they're burdensome or oppressive, that they steal joy, that they cause judgmentalism and polarization? I think for most of us, if we're honest, it's actually not so much a matter of whether we like rules or dislike rules. It's a matter of which rules we like and whose rules we like. And perhaps above all, whether we get to choose which rules to value and which rules to dismiss, or which ones to declare as outdated, which ones to uphold as essential to be a good person. Our desire to choose which rules and which laws to value or dismiss is so evident if you just look around for a split second in our world today. It's evident with major moral issues like sexual identity and practice, issues that arise, that arise in the moment. It's not been too long since we had COVID shutdowns and vaccines and mask wearing that was required, and I know it's still too soon to talk about those things. <laughs> um, but all of those things so clearly depict the tension that we feel when it comes to rules. Or maybe it's in the vehemency with which we are sure we know which political candidates are okay to vote for and which ones are not. But our love of picking and choosing rules is even true with practical, daily, like totally inconsequential things. Which way does the toilet paper go on the roll? Do dishes get cleaned after dinner? Or is it okay to wait till tomorrow? Even these sort of silly things bring up passion, judgment, dismissal, all kinds of things. I'm sure that many of you guys have experienced the rhythms of these things in your own lives and own homes. We like rules and care about them and will follow and defend them if we get to choose which ones and we feel like we are on board with them. But in our passage today, we find a conflict. It's the fifth of a series of, uh, of five conflicts that Jesus has had with the religious leaders of the day. And the Pharisees in this passage, who Jesus is interacting with, are rule lovers. By conviction and self-understanding, the, the Pharisees are not just rule lovers. They are lovers of God's law. And yet, when these people come in contact with Jesus, something begins to get exposed in them that in all of their thoughtfulness, in all of their careful interpretation, in all of their calculated application of God's laws, that they might actually have missed the very purpose and aim of God's laws. That even though they view themselves as stalwart defenders of God's laws, people who are on the right side of Jewish history, as it were, they may themselves actually be blind not only misunderstanding God's laws, but countering God's laws, making it a burden for God's people. Is it possible that we also, in our picking 
and choosing which rules and laws to defend and uphold could be blinded. Blinded to seeing what God has intended for us, what he has made his laws for in our lives. Is it possible that our relationship with the law has taken life, has taken life rather than given life? Whether our own or those around us who have to put, us, put up with us in our self-righteousness. And what happens in this passage when these defenders of God's law come in contact with someone with authority like Jesus? It's important to understand the background of uh, the passage that we're reading and the background of the Old Testament understanding of Sabbath. Um, I'm going to read for us from Exodus chapter 20. We'll have it up on the slides. Um, verses 8 through 11. This is the giving of the Ten Commandments. Um, and this is uh, the commandment to keep the Sabbath. And this is what it says. Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. There's a clear commandment to, the, to set the Sabbath day aside to rest from work, to rest your employees and your animals from work, to set it aside as a different kind of day, to remember that God is at work even when we're not at work. And here in this passage, Jesus and his disciples are out in the field on a Sabbath day, and they're plucking grain to eat. And the Pharisees see this new character on the scene who's been making quite the stir who claims authority amongst God's people, and his disciples are gleaning grain in the fields on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are very concerned. And they say in verse 24, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, at first, when you hear the Pharisees, it sounds innocuous and maybe even good and healthy, a proper concern coming from them. And maybe if you were a Jewish person of the day, you might actually hear the Pharisees say this and say, yeah, why are they doing this? Shouldn't they be concerned with whether Jesus and his followers who claim to be following the God of the Old Testament, whether or not they're following God's rules? But you have to understand the Pharisees were sizing up Jesus and his disciples based on something called the Mishnah. The Mishnah were Jewish laws that had been added onto the Sabbath. And the Mishnah said that there were 39 types of activities that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Here's a couple examples. The Mishnah says that he who sows, plows, reaps, binds, sheaves, threshes, winnows, selects, uh, fit from unfit produce or crops, grinds, sifts, kneads, bakes, who shears wool, washes it, beats it, dyes it, spins, weaves, it goes on and on. And the Pharisees see Jesus and his disciples and they're like, you are breaking the Mishnah. Therefore, you are breaking God's law, and we have a problem with you. But if you're sure that you're a great discerner of what rules are to be kept and how, encountering this Jesus who claims authority is going to reveal something about your relationship with rules. Here's the logic of the Pharisees. We have reverence for the Sabbath, we keep it carefully, and we believe that it's important, and it's so important that we have expanded and detailed further ways to keep it. 
And Jesus' disciples are violating these ways, therefore they are violating the Sabbath. They are, exacerba- they are exacerbated and saying, why are they doing what is not lawful? But what the, what the Pharisees are subtly saying is this. This is how we have applied God's law. And God endorses our way of doing things. God gave us a starting point and we filled it out from there. And all of our thoughtfulness, and all of our careful interpretation, and all of the Pharisees' calculated application, and all of their late night discussions on what is right and wrong, picking and choosing who they agreed with and disagreed with. In our day and age, we might say, in all of our curating of social media, picking which people we're going to follow, which people we're going to unfollow, which people we're going to repost, which people we're not going to repost. The Pharisees have made themselves the authority. If you want to know what God's rules are, they would say, ask us. Look at us. The Pharisees love rules, and the Pharisees think that they love God's rules. And here's the thing. The Pharisees honestly believe that they love God's rules. But what Jesus reveals in this passage is that the Pharisees love their rules. And more than that, they love being the rule makers. Some of you very much identify with the sort of religious overtones of the Pharisees in this passage. You see the changing tides of culture and morality around you, and you find yourself probably saying something like, what they are doing is not lawful. It's not okay what I see people doing. And I'm frustrated by the way culture is changing and people's expectations and their ethics are changing. Morality is changing. So some of you might actually very much identify with the Pharisees' language, but I suspect that many of you identify less with the religious overtones of the Pharisees and find yourself instead saying things more like, nobody has the right to tell anyone else what to do. No one can tell me what to do. It's up to me to interpret my own life and what is right or wrong for me. And if you try to tell anyone what to do, you're violating their freedom. And the funny thing is that when we say that, we think we're saying something different from what the Pharisees are saying. It's actually kind of funny, too, how people would count themselves on diametrically opposed like positions on everything, right? Like super conservative or super liberal or whatever language you want to use. And yet they just have different language for saying the exact same thing. Some people would say, you can't violate my freedom of self-expression. And some people would say, you can't violate my God-given rights. And the reality is, both those people are saying the exact same thing. Both mean the same thing. At the end of the day, I am my own rule maker. All of us are our own rule makers, and you had better leave it that way. Even if you don't identify with the religious overtones of the Pharisees, you may be adamant about yours and others' right to pick and choose, but it's just another way of saying that we are our own rule makers. You may even find yourself thinking any group or institution that makes rules or pushes a particular understanding of right and wrong is oppressive or abusive, and so you say, look, what they are doing is not right. Does that language sound familiar? It's exactly what the Pharisees are saying. Just as the Pharisees say, look, what the disciples are doing is not, long, not lawful, we, like the disciples, not only like to pick and choose our rules, but it betrays our heart 
that we are our own rule makers, which means that Jesus' response to the Pharisees is just as relevant for us as it was for the Pharisees 2,000 years ago. And how does Jesus respond to them? Verse 25, and Jesus said to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What Jesus does in response to the Pharisees is he brings up a situation in the Old Testament that their understanding or their argument of God's law doesn't neatly account for. Jesus is saying, you think your system of rules is the right one, but, and I know you love David because you're a good Jewish person, but the Bible, says, and the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart, but do you remember the time that he entered into God's holy temple and he took bread that according to God's holy law, only the priests could eat and he ate it and he gave it to his men? What is Jesus' implication? Not only did David take it and give it to his men, but also God was okay with that. But would you have been? Jesus is pointing out to the Pharisees that they would not have been okay with the things that God was okay with in the Old Testament. They are not aligned with God's vision. Jesus is saying this is the same situation like David and his men. Here is Jesus and his disciples. And David was the king of Israel, and when he and his men were hungry, they recognized that circumstance and the intent of the law would still allow for them to eat bread, and they did. And Jesus is saying, I come claiming that I am the Lord of Israel, ruler of the rules, David's son and yet David's Lord, and my disciples are hungry, and we will eat the grain left here for gleaning. And here's where you really know the point Jesus is making. Verse 28, Jesus says, so the Son of Man, referring to himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you play the part of king deciding and enforcing rules, but I've got something to tell you. There's a new rule maker in town. Actually, there's a very old rule maker in town. His name is Jesus, and he is the king. He is the Lord and the king even over the Sabbath. You've taken your ability to interpret rules and escalated yourself to the place of king, and I'm telling you, I wrote the Sabbath rules, and I am the king. So we have to ask ourselves, how have you made yourself the rule maker? How have you set yourself up as the spokesperson of God's law, or perhaps you wouldn't use the language of God's law, but as the arbiter of morality in the world? How have you assessed yourself to be the determiner of what is the right side of history? Probably for most of us, it's subtle. And most of the time, this sense is only in our mind, silent words muttered to ourselves. But where in life have you decided to become the rule maker? Is it in your political life? You decide what the biblical application of social justice is, or you decide what the hard work ethic looks like, and then you begin to assess everyone else based on your standard. 
This passage calls us to be more honest with ourselves, that we love being the rule makers. And it calls us to repent of making ourselves the rule makers. When you make yourself the rule maker, you declare yourself as God's spokesman and effectively take his place as the rule maker. We have put ourselves on the throne. We say, if these people really loved God, if these people were really good people, if they would be on board with my political agendas, if these people really loved God, they wouldn't follow that person on social media, or they would repost this like I do, or if they weren't just a bunch of fundamentalists, they would curse a little more, or drink a little more, or whatever it is. A telltale sign that you have set yourself up as a rule maker is the accusatory tone of the Pharisees. Look, why are they doing what is not lawful? Look, why do they drive in that lane? Look, why do they vote for that person? Look, why do they support that cause? Is there room in your life for a new king in town? For Jesus and Jesus alone to be king? Are you willing to see Jesus not just as a teacher or a loving leader, but as a king? A king that says, listen, you have made a habit of submitting others to your rules. What I'm telling you is that I am asking you to submit to me. Because whether you treat me as the king or not, I am the king. I alone ultimately can say what is good and right and true because I am God incarnate. Now, I want to recognize, too, I think this is an important caveat, that there is a grand irony that often sneaks up on us when we start calling out rulemaking tendencies. Something inside us, I think, I don't know if this is especially for Americans or what, but something inside us, when we start calling out rulemakers, starts to go, aha, I knew it. It's nobody's place to tell me what to do. Down with the outdated traditions and institutions, it's just me, God, and the Wild West. But beloved, if we begin to think that way, we would miss the call to repentance in this passage. Jesus is calling us out of autonomy. He's telling us that we were never meant for autonomy. We were meant to have a rule maker outside of ourselves. He is calling us to submit to his rule. And this is a tall order for us. Why would anyone in their right mind in the 21st century submit to a king? Aren't we past the era of monarchs? Aren't they just things that we watch on TV and read in the tabloids? To submit to someone outside yourself and someone who claims authority over who you are and what your identity is and what you can and cannot do, why would we do that? It's so counter to everything in us. Before you totally throw out the possibility of doing this, before you discount the idea of submitting to a king in the 21st century, there's an important question that we have to ask. The key question of this text is, who is king? Is it Jesus or is it us? The question is not whether we're going to submit to someone that we treat as a king. The question is whether we've decided to set ourselves up as a king or whether we look to Jesus as the king. 
And Jesus claims that he is king, but it leads to a second question that becomes incredibly important for us. What kind of king is asking us to submit to him? What kind of king is asking us to submit to him? On the flip side, what would it look like to submit to rulemakers like the Pharisees or like you and I? This is so clear in the passage, but it's also so clear in our lives that our rulemaking is life-taking. It is burdensome. The Pharisees have added rules onto God's law, 39 types of activities they couldn't do on the Sabbath. They've determined that the Torah, the Old Testament laws, had 613 laws, 248 positive and 365 negative. And then they added an extra hedge around that. And here they are with the irony of ironies. You know what's exhausting? The Sabbath, the day of rest. The very day that was intended for rest. And this is why Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. He isn't saying there's no rules. Do whatever you want on the Sabbath. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying our rulemaking exhausts us and I meant this command to give you life. You need the Sabbath. You need rest. You need to stop and know that when you stop, God is still at work. It's not all on your shoulders. Jesus later in the passage from chapter 3 says, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? There's a purpose for the Sabbath. The disciples are hungry, and the Pharisees would say, You should have planned better. Looks like you're going to be a hungry boys of this Sabbath day. They have so focused on the rule itself that they have lost the point of it. And they have turned they have in turn become heartless and hard-hearted. Their rules are exhausting and they try to get everyone else to be exhausted with them. And this is always the way it goes. I remember several years ago, this was probably, I think I was probably 22, 23, something like that. I was out of college and I was um, doing an internship with the campus ministry. And I really, really wanted my housemates and I to have um, sort of a regular dinner together. And uh, one of my housemates in particular um, is a pretty social butterfly, and every time we would kind of seem to plan it, then he would at the last minute have another plan, and he would never really come. And I would get really frustrated, um, and I would sometimes lash out really passive-aggressively towards him, and I'm like, this is what being like roommates and loving one another, this is what it's supposed to look like. I had decided that. <laughs> he hadn't decided that. And the irony was that under the guise of being good roommates, I was being a jerk to my roommate because he wasn't fulfilling my vision for what it would look like to love one another as roommates. And man, we could, we could pick and choose any little thing in our lives. We do this with each other all the time. This is so much of the conflict in our relationships. And it's also part of the reason why we hate rules and hate laws. Because we've been on the receiving end of this kind of bitterness and self-righteousness, and we say, I want no part of that. I'll just make my own rules. But beloved, Jesus' rulemaking is not like that. What is the rulemaking of the king like? It focuses on the heart. 
We already talked about David and Abiathar, the priest. Look at the example of David taking the bread of the presence to feed his men. David, the king of Israel, broke the law. He feeds his men. And Jesus is saying, David understood the summary of all of God's rules. Love God and love your neighbor. Instead of focusing on rote religious behavior, God's rulemaking requires our hearts to change. If all you have to do is not pluck grain on the Sabbath or read your Bible 30 minutes a day, that's easy. But God's rules require our hearts to change. They require love. Both seeing our need for God's love and receiving it and reflecting it towards others. When I say it focuses on the heart, I don't mean as long as you have good intentions, it doesn't matter what you do. That's not what the Bible says. But what I mean is this, the focus of God's law is to shape our hearts to receive and give God's love, to change us as we seek to live out his vision in the world. It's not about robotic alignment. It's about the heart. But what else is the rulemaking of this king like? It defines rules based on who he is and how he has created us. In verse 27, it says, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The passage that we read from Exodus grounds the Sabbath and the creation. What Jesus is teaching about the Sabbath, what Jesus does with rules is he makes rules, God makes rules based on his design for us, on what we're made for. That's why they're good for us. Jesus is claiming that he's the rule maker and his rules are based on how he has created us. He made them for our good. They are an expression of his love. The Pharisees' rules and our rules simply rooted in our practices and preferences and limited historical vision. But Jesus' are based on who he has made us to be and what we most truly need. Uh, I remember several years ago reading an author that said, um, as I was wrestling to come to grips with the Sabbath, which I have still sometimes have a hard time slowing down, as I know many of you can identify with that as well. And this author said that Sabbath is a day that you've accomplished nothing and you are completely okay with it. There's freedom and rest in seeing God as the king and creator and us as people who can cease and know that he is still at work. God's rules are for our good because they understand who we are and what we need. What else is the rulemaking of this king like? Thirdly, God's rulemaking pushes us to self-examination instead of self-righteousness. Verse 28, he says, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus himself, Jesus declares himself as creator by having authority to define the Sabbath. He is in charge. We are not. It's a very different thing to view the laws of God as dead things on a piece of paper versus the desires of the king of the universe. If we look, as long as we look at God's rules as dead things on a piece of paper, we can tinker with them. We can add to them. We can redefine them. We can say, I read my Bible this morning, therefore I'm good. And you didn't, therefore you're bad. Or this command doesn't really square with my preferences or my social group, so it probably didn't really mean what it sounds like it means. But as soon as we look at the rules as the desires of the king of the universe, 
for his world, and for his people, we have to change our attitude. We have to let the rules have authority over us. Instead of looking at and controlling the law, we have to let the law look at us. Self-righteousness has to begin to die, and self-examination has to begin to ensue. When Jesus is the rule maker, we are pushed to self-examination instead of self-righteousness. Lastly, what is the rule making of this king like? I've already alluded to this, but God's rule making is life-giving. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. For the Pharisees, even the Sabbath had become a burden. God made the Sabbath to give man rest and freedom. Six days shall you labor, and the seventh you shall rest, to be rejuvenated and refreshed. I've already said this several times, but I love how in Exodus 36, God tells his people to keep the Sabbath even in harvest times, which is a big deal in agrarian societies. And it says this, keep the Sabbath so that you may know that he is the Lord. Implication, if you don't keep the Sabbath, you will not know that, the, that God is the Lord, <laughs> that God is on his throne. You will believe that you are, and you will be anxious all the time. <laughs> it frees us so that you may know. It's life-giving. That means that they can stop for a day and realize that they aren't in control and it isn't all up to them. When we follow God's laws, we are most human. We can apply this to lots of different laws. It's not just the Sabbath, right? The, the commandment and the Ten Commandments to not commit adultery is not just about avoiding something. It's about the wholeness of committed relationship. The commandment to not covenant is not just uh, covet, not coveting is not just about avoiding wanting something that's not ours. It's about learning to have contentment with what we have and trusting that God will provide. What kind of king is asking us to submit to him? One who is a good rule maker, who calls us to see the beauty of his rule making, and we must begin to trust him and the rules that he has given us. We must let his rules and his law peer inside us and change us rather than us trying to control it. What if you're here this morning and you can still only see the rules as burdensome? You look at them and you see how far you are from their ideals. You're afraid to rest on the Sabbath. You constantly feel angry towards those you live with because of how you, you can never live up to the rules that they have. What if you struggle deeply with lust? What if, you, uh, what if for you the law only brings condemnation? Uh, for many years, what David says in Psalm 119, when he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, that seemed insane to me. <laughs> that David would sing these sort of like, these, these poems about God's law as this beautiful thing. I'm like, this guy's crazy. Like, who sees the law and is like, it's so beautiful. Until I began to understand what Jesus the King came to do. In chapter 3, verse 6, it says that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. If you're a literary person or if you're not, this is what we call foreshadowing. <laughs> Jesus is in conflict with the religious leaders, and Jesus knows where the conflict is going. But he's committed to his mission, 
And what is his mission? To die for rule breakers. So that all of the condemnation that we rightly experience can be reoriented. And all the condemnation that we feel can be redeemed. For all who trust in this king, a king who came to die for rule makers and rule breakers, there is now no condemnation. In Jesus, the law has no power to condemn us. But because Jesus has perfectly fulfilled it and taken our failures upon himself, instead of condemning us, in Jesus, the law offers us a vision into the new humanity, a new way of living, the freedom to follow God in the way that he has intended us to, one that is for the good of man and brings flourishing to the world. Jesus claims to be king, and he is a good king who came to die for all who trust in him. And it is that king who invites us to let go of our rulemaking and to begin to look to him and trust. I love how the story plays out in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3. It's just this little depiction of the heart of the rulemaker in practice. Jesus enters the synagogue where there's a man with a withered hand And it's closely watched by the Pharisees because it's the Sabbath day. And Jesus says to this man with the withered hand, come. And he said to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And they remain silent. And it tells us this challenging and beautiful thing, that Jesus was angered at them. It says that he was grieved at their hardness of heart because they didn't know how to live the law of God with love of God and love of neighbor. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored. Beloved, Jesus is the king. He is the true rule maker, and in his rules there is life. So much so that in Matthew chapter 11... Jesus says to all who are wearied of rule-making and worn down by rule-breaking, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, I have laid my life down for you. Follow me, let go of your kingdom, and come into mine, for here alone is life. Let me pray for us, and then I'll see what questions we have. Father, thank you that you are a good king. Lord, we confess that we are not very good kings, (laughs) but we also confess that it's really hard for us to let go of trying to be kings, trying to make our own rules. It is so deeply woven into us to pick and choose, to discern for ourselves. Lord, help us to know what it means to let your laws examine us instead of for us to have hard, maybe cynical hearts as we examine your laws. Lord, help us to see the goodness and the beauty and the life that is given in your commands. Lord, help us to see not just words on a page, but the vision of the king of the universe given to us for our good.
Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. This is hard. Teach us what it means to submit to you and that you are good and worth submitting to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've got a couple of questions. Um, Here we go. (laughs) Got uh, one comment about toilet paper rolls and uh, the direction they should go. I respect that. I do actually have very strong opinions on this. Um, Have I ever been in someone else's house and switched the role? I I decline to answer that question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When we argue over rules, for or against, do you think we miss the opportunity to be truly fed and sustained by God? Man, that's a good question. I think that... um, This is something I've reflected on a lot as I've been thinking about the gospel of Mark and what its vision for discipleship is, which discipleship is just a word to define what it means to follow Jesus and to become more like Jesus. And the thing that I think that we so often, and this is probably very American of us, we're always trying to figure out like, how can we figure out what discipleship is and what we're supposed to do to be discipled? And if there's anything that I want us to see over and over and over again in the Gospel of Mark is that discipleship is a posture more than it is a behavior. There is behavior involved in it, but the behavior flows out of the posture. And that's part of why this whole thing that we're talking about this morning is so important, because it's what is our posture towards Jesus and towards the King and to what He calls us to? If our posture is, nah, I'm good, (laughs) I kind of want to go my own way, we will not be formed and shaped. That's not discipleship. Posture is the most essential thing because it's having a heart of faith. Jesus is grieved by what? The hardness of heart. The posture of the Pharisees that says, I'm over this, I see through it all, and it's not a posture of humility. Humility is not a posture of learning. So to answer this question, I would actually say, when we argue over rules for or against, do you think we miss the opportunity to be truly fed or sustained by God? I would say it depends on our posture. I think we can have these discussions and actually ought to have these discussions about what it looks like to live these things out in our lives. But we have to have the clear, uh, the clear heart and desire and posture to learn and grow And if we don't ever find ourselves coming up against passages of Scripture that don't align with our vision and figuring out how to realign ourselves to what the Scripture says, then we have probably made ourselves the king. (laughs) If we find ourselves always in agreement with the Scriptures, um, but also not always in agreement with some other people who also believe in the Scriptures, there might be something up with us. Um, So we... all that to say, I think the most important thing, whether or not we're having, the, having those discussions, is our posture in the midst of them. Um, <laughs> okay, here's a tricky question. So, does this mean I should sign up for serving in table kids to do good, or shouldn't sign up for serving in table kids because it's not restful? How do I tell the difference between good for us obligation to God's rules and bad for us guilt? that comes from obligating ourselves to merely human rules? Man, what a great question. 
Um, because I would say, in part, the answer to this question, of course, is yes. Um, there's something that I have seen over and over again that, like, <laughs> the way that we have often dealt with um, guilt or shame or obligation is by saying, why don't we get rid of the obligations and get rid of the rules that make me feel guilt or shame? Um, that's how we're going to deal with feeling these feelings of guilt or obligation. Um, and, uh, you know, there's times and places that that might be helpful, uh, but generally speaking, it really feels like we're solving the wrong problem with that, <laughs> right? The problem that needs to be solved is, first of all, we believe in the gospel, <laughs> which means that even when we fall far short of good rules, we are covered in grace. You are not defined by failing or falling short or not being a good enough parent or a good enough church member. Like, you are defined by grace. You are covered in the blood of Jesus. You are covered in His righteousness. But also, obligation, I think, is a tricky thing because we tend to think of obligation as if there is something that I feel obligated towards, then it automatically means that it has to be bad. And sometimes we can enter into obligation and we have to enter into obligation in order to be formed more into the people of God. There's actually a commitment to doing things that we don't always want to do, and that's part of our formation. But what we don't want to do is leave our hearts behind in doing that. Right? What we, we, again, we're trying to solve the problem but the wrong way. We're like, okay, well, I guess I have to do this thing, so I'm just going to gird up my loins and clench my fists and head headlong into this thing where I feel too depleted and worn out to do it. And I want to say, no, 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 no. Let's start with the beauty and rest and grace of God. Let's start by receiving God's love and figure out what it looks like to live that out in obligation. Um, so that's probably not a very satisfying answer, but I think that all these things, my hope is that it actually causes us to wrestle with the tensions in this. If you're like, I'm walking away from this sermon and I'm actually more confused about what I should do in my daily life than I was before, good. I think that actually should be part of what this looks like because we, we actually have to wrestle with this in our daily lives. Hopefully that's not just a cop-out if I was just not clear at all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, um, we're going to move towards uh, the Lord's uh, table. Um, I'll, uh, I'll pray for us briefly again as Brad moves over to begin the table. Um, Father, uh, this stuff sometimes makes our heads spin, um, but Lord, we ask that by your mercy and grace um, that you would uh, give us sanity in the midst of our insanity. <laughs> where we have lost an understanding of what it means to live by something outside of ourselves and actually see its goodness. Uh, we don't know how to do that. Lord, by your spirit, would you begin to reframe that in us this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Something that I appreciated about how 